Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show for the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Tanya, and I'm joined by my co-host, Joyla. Hello, everyone. And we have joining us a new recruit for GradCast, but also a first-time guest on our show, Greg Robinson, joining us from Fizz Farm in his first year of his master's. Welcome. Hello. And this is apparently a special show because both Greg and Joyla are first time on GradCast and first time joining the show in some way. So Joyla's first interview and Greg's first being the person being interviewed. Um, so clearly I'm just the veteran. So thanks guys. Yep. <laughs> All right, so we're gonna just dive right into it. And before I ask you, Greg, what is your study about? What is Fizz Farm? Good question. So quite often when I say Fizz Farm, a lot of people think I'm like some type of farmer, but I'm not, <laughs> not at all. Uh, I study physiology and pharmacology, okay. and that's what PhysPharm stands for. Well, thank you for clarifying that. <laughs> um, so now let's dive into the actual research part. What are sure. you up to? So I study maternal diabetes and how that induces what's called neural tube defects in mice, and it's to study humans, essentially, to better understand how that process goes on. And can you explain to us what exactly is a neural tube defect? Sure. So uh, when your brain and your spine is forming early on in pregnancy, it starts out actually as a plate, and it's called the neural plate. And this plate will actually um, it will fold upon itself and create what's called a neural tube. And this neural tube eventually goes on, and on the cranial end, it creates the cranium and the brain whereas on the other end, it produces the spine. Hmm. So would a defect then be a problem in that process of... Neural tube development. Yeah, yeah. neural tube development. So, so when the development of the neural tube uh, goes wrong, it's called a neural tube defect. Mm -hmm. And when this happens, it can either happen in the brain area, and this um, can cause a brain defect, mm -hmm. or it can go in the spine area, and it can cause a spinal defect, and this is called spina bifida for the spine. And when if it's in the brain, it there's a bunch of different ones, but the ones I study is called anencephaly. Mm -hmm. So what does that one specifically yeah. do? So anencephaly is when the actual brain is growing outside of the cranium. And so how this goes about is when that neural plane forms the neural tube, if there's a hole in the brain, in the cranium side of the neural tube, then the brain can actually grow outside of the, of the, of the cranium. And when oh. this happens, in the pregnant mother, if this is the mouse or the human, the actual brain will uh, it will uh, degrade, mm. and this will, will cause the baby to be born without a brain. So it's a really interesting process that goes on. And is this common in maternal diabetes? Yeah, so it's much more common in maternal diabetes than um, in pregnant women that aren't diabetic. Okay. And so it is a pretty big problem with diabetes. And so when someone's maternal diabetic, what does that mean? So that's a great question. And so there's two types of uh, maternal diabetes, and there's pregestational diabetes and there's gestational diabetes. And so I look at pregestational. And so this is when you get diabetes prior to, in humans, it's like 24 to 27 weeks in, in pregnancy that you'll actually become uh, diabetic. Mm -hmm. Uh, whereas pregestational is when you actually become diabetic prior to pregnancy. So it's interesting um, 
and I, I would love for you to explain to our listeners that pregnancy is actually a time where women are at risk for diabetes. So could you explain yeah. that a bit more? Yeah, so gestational diabetes is quite common actually in pregnant women. This is because when you become pregnant at approximately that 24 to 27 week mark, you'll actually, um, your the amount of glucose will actually go up early on in pregnancy actually, but we detected uh, around that time point and the uh, amount of insulin will go up and you'll actually be insulin resistant more than uh, when you're not pregnant. And so this is a physiological um, thing that goes on, but it can also be pathological. And this is when there's too much glucose, um, even higher than uh, when it's in pre normal pregnant women. And there's too much insulin, even higher than when it's uh, in, in pregnant women normally. And just for listeners who aren't too familiar with diabetes, how is um, insulin um, measured? How is insulin measured? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there is uh, some sort of technique mm -hmm. that can be done. Uh, so, so I study mice. I don't actually okay. study humans, and so I'm not too sure about the human side. In mice, we don't actually look at the insulin levels. Oh, the important thing is actually glucose. And so we look at the glucose levels, and our mice are actually type 1 diabetic. And so this is pre-gestational diabetes. Mm. So we don't actually expect them to have very much insulin going on. And so it's, it's just a high amount of glucose, and that's where all the effects um, from diabetes really occur. So you induce these mice with diabetes. Can you yes. tell us a little bit about how that works? Say, do you find diabetic mice? <laughs> We don't find diabetic mice. We have our own uh, lab mice. Uh, it's the C57BL line that we use. And this uh, is just a wild type, a normal strain of mice. But we then inject it with a chemical called streptozootocin. And so we do three injections at about 75 milligrams per kilogram um, of a, per each mouse um, on, on uh, consecutive days, three consecutive days. And so after this, we wait about a week and we do a blood glucose test. So we actually measure the blood, uh, the glucose in the blood. And at this point, if it's higher than say 11 um, nanomolars per liter, nanomoles per liter, mm -hmm. um, we then di diagnose it as diabetic. So then for three consecutive days, um, if, if the mouse doesn't become diabetic, what happens? So that's a great question. So if it doesn't become diabetic, recently this actually happened to me. <laughs> and so we had, after the one week period that we wait after giving streptozootocin, we have to wait, first of all, because um, it takes a little time for it to kill the beta cells in the pancreas. And then once it does kill the, the beta cells in the pancreas, which release insulin, um, we then detect, so this is about a week. And if it doesn't actually kill enough beta cells, there's not gonna be a high enough glucose level, and so we inject it again. Hmm. Okay. And so I just did one injection. Um, and so that we're going to wait another week and then detect the glucose levels again. So you've already started this project then? Yeah, so I have started. So I officially started uh, beginning of September, but I actually did a fellowship in the lab that I'm currently in, Dr. Feng's okay. lab. Uh, and I started that at the beginning of July. Okay, I was awesome. going to say, because that's pretty quick to, to get a project started yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, for being a new master's student. Yeah, it was a lot of reading, which I'm told that's pretty common, but <laughs> just getting started on it. So yeah, and exciting. it doesn't end, so yeah. <laughs> just keep reading. <laughs> so what would be the next step once the mouse is diabetic? So once it's diabetic, we then, uh, we'll, after we've diagnosed it, we'll put it together with a male mouse. Mm. And this male mouse is perfectly normal, perfectly healthy. It's not diabetic or anything wrong. It's the same strain of mice too. And so we will put them together, we'll let them breed, 
and then the next morning we check to see if there's a plug and if there is a plug, then we expect that it will be pregnant. Sometimes it's not, but it usually is. Okay. Yeah. And then how long is a, a mouse's sort of gestational or pregnancy? Yeah. yeah. So the gestation uh, and pregnancy of for mice is between 19 and 21 days. Okay. Yeah. And then is there kind of like a particular time point that you intervene? or? Yeah, that's a great question. So we stop all of our pregnancies at day 10.5. So it's like halfway for a mouse. Yeah, so we put the mice together at night, mm -hmm. and so the next morning we check to see if they're pregnant, and so we call that day 0.5. Hmm. And then each day after that it's 1.5, 2.5, and so on. So at 10.5 we do a C-section and we actually take out the fetuses. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. And how many mice are born in a litter? So it's about 8 to 12. Okay. However, if they're diabetic, it's usually a little bit less. So what are the odds that the, the, the litter would actually have diabetes? So, like, do you mean how many... Have the neural tube defects. Neural tube defects, mm -hmm. okay, yeah. So it, we would expect approximately 10%. Mm -hmm. So I'm just starting, so I haven't actually seen the first results yet. Okay. However, there was a PhD student, he still is a PhD student in my lab, he's just finishing up now, and he does the exact same thing that I'm doing and the exact same chemical pathway that I'm looking at, except he's doing it in congenital heart defects. Hmm. And so he found this one chemical called tetrahydrobiopterin hmm. that's shown to counteract to counteract the effects of diabetes on heart defects. And so hmm. I'm looking at it now on neural tube defects. And hmm. so I'm curious if um, if the mouse does have neural tube defects, um, is there any way to potentially prevent this? Yeah, or? definitely. So that's a great question. So in humans, um, the likeliness of having a neural tube defect is much higher when you're pregnant. However, a long time ago we found out that folate plays a large role in preventing neural tube defects. And so it's quite common right now when you become pregnant to take folate supplements as well as folates also fortified into our food. So in certain grain products, it's not mandatory, but a lot of companies will put folate in like bread. Hmm. And so when you're consuming it, it greatly reduces the amount of neural tube defects. Mm -hmm. But this is only one particular pathway that can prevent neural tube defects. And so the one that I'm looking at to study is called tetrahydrobiopterin, also known as BH4. <laughs> Much easier to say that. <laughs> so I study BH4 and how that could prevent um, neural tube defects. Interesting. So is that kind of a part of what you hope to do to see if diabetes has an impact on neural tube defects and then the prevention piece? Yeah, exactly. So right now I'm at the stage I need to show that I have a model where diabetes does produce neural tube defects, okay. but because of the previous student, we already kind of know it does. Mm. Right. And so after I get some mice and I see that there are neural tube defects and I classify them because there's more than one um, cranial neural tube defect, and we're really focusing on the cranium side, uh, but after I classify them and I get a bunch, we're then going to use BH4 supplements and see if that does prevent the neural tube defects, which we expect it will. Interesting. Yeah, that's very yeah. interesting. So if born with these neural tube defects, is it likely that they will be stillborn or can they still survive? Yeah, so that's a great question. So the main neural tube defect that we see um, due to diabetes is called anencephaly. And okay. this is where you're actually born without a brain. And so when you're born without a brain, there's not really good chances of you surviving. Most are stillborns or if they do survive, they uh, they don't last very long, unfortunately. And is there if they do survive, is there anything that can be done for them? They don't survive very long. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
it's not like you're not going to make it past a year. Yeah, it's generally the entire brain is gone. Sometimes the spinal cord, uh, you won't have much of a spinal cord. Sometimes you'll have a little bit of a brain. And I know there are some circumstances where when they're born, they're still alive, but they usually, they pass away shortly after, unfortunately. And this is true for humans, or are we just yeah, speaking so about this, mice this here? this is humans, but okay. it's, it's pretty much the same thing as mice. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, and I guess that, like, you know, with the with the lack of brain, then you it would affect all the other systems exactly. in the body, yeah. which is why. So why does this happen? What is it about diabetes that potentially increases the risk for neural tube defects? Yeah, so that's a great question. So diabetes is essentially, it's you have hyperglycemia due to a couple of reasons. And so I'm studying type 1 diabetes, and this is when you don't have the beta cells to produce, or you have beta cells and they just can't adequately produce insulin. And when they can't adequately produce insulin, uh, you have hyperglycemia. And so this hyperglycemia can pass through the placenta and into the fetal circulation. And when you have too much glucose, it can cause damage by the glucose actually attaching to proteins, can attach to RNA, um, enzymes, DNA, and it can cause many different effects. Mm -hmm. But the main pathway that we're looking at is actually through oxidative stress. Can you explain what that is? Sure. So oxidative stress essentially is, uh, there's things called reactive oxygen species. There's also a few others like reactive nitrogen species that are related to it. And this is where there's an oxygen chemical that has like an extra electron on it. And this unpaired electron will then pretty much just attack proteins, as well as DNA and RNA, and this will just cause the malfunctioning of cells. Mm -hmm. And when these cells malfunction on a histological level, we have these defects, like neural tube defects. So how do you measure that from like a methods perspective? That's a great question. So yeah, so the, the, the reason why I love my research so much is that I'm a big picture kind of guy. I don't really like to just narrow down on a specific protein and like how it folds or how it interacts. I like actually looking at the, the actual tissue. Mm. And so when I take out the, the embryos of the mite from the mice, I'm actually looking at the entire embryo. And the first thing I do is a visual um, inspection and I take photos of that. Mm. But then I then do immunohistochemistry and I section the, the, uh, the top of the brain and I put it on slides. So that way I can actually see each cell in its brain. Hmm. How long does this take? It's a very long process. Uh, so since it's so early on in pregnancy, I'm looking at, at the very latest, day 10.5. Mm -hmm. At the earliest, about 8.5. This is when the neural plane starts to form the neural tube. And so I'm looking between these two days. And so the embryo is very, very small. So it doesn't take as long as other um, organs or at later on periods. But it's still, it can take a few days um, just to get it on a, a slide and to stain it. So mm -hmm. it's, it takes a little while. And that's just after you actually got the embryo out of the mouse. And so you have to breed them together. You have to give them diabetes. And so it's, it's a long process. Mm -hmm. right, yeah. right. And so that's why I'm, I'm about two months in and I'm just expecting my, my results soon. Yeah. Wow. Um, so just going back, so you had mentioned that um, you're looking at type 1 diabetes, correct? Yes, yeah. So how does type 2 diabetes compare, or is that something that you so that's haven't a looked great into? Question. Yeah. So the main thing that causes these defects is the hyperglycemia. So type 2 diabetes, it is pretty much the same, but slightly different. 
Okay. There's also hyperinsulinemia. So this is when you have too much insulin. And so it's been proposed that insulin does affect um, various things in the fetus. However, I don't really study that too much. Okay. I couldn't tell you too much about it. But the, um, the rates of these neural tube defects between the two are very similar. Hmm. So uh, a pregnant woman that has diabetes, is she automatically screened for the, these neural tube defects? Yes, that's, that's a great question. So when you have diabetes prior to getting pregnant, or uh, you get diabetes early on in pregnancy, um, prior to be, it being gestational diabetes, you have, first of all, you get a bunch of appointments to make sure that you're eating healthy, eating properly. They're going to measure your glucose levels, and if you're a little high, they're going to try to get you to lower it. And if it's still a little bit high after a little bit later on pregnancy, you're going to just essentially be put on insulin for the rest of your pregnancy. The problem with this, and, and why it's so important for us to study this, is that even when we put them on insulin, it's still going to have, sometimes you're going to have hyperglycemia. It's just, it's so hard to avoid, it's so hard to track and monitor your glucose levels, as well as at this point, it's so far in, it's like so far later on into pregnancy that the neural tube is actually already formed, or in this case, malformed. And so it's kind of a little too late for it. So are there other things that could cause neural tube defects beyond that of diabetes? Yeah, so there, there's definitely other, we call it insults, onto the fetus. Um, various things, like another person in our lab is studying nicotine, and she's shown there's a lot of effects of nicotine onto uh, the embryos of, she studies heart defects, actually. We're a heart lab. I'm the only one start, uh, studying neural tube defects. <laughs> but uh, she's shown that nicotine does affect heart defects. Interesting. And so it's potential that it also affects the neural tube defects. And there's definitely other things that does affect it, but I don't study those. So I have a question from something you said right at the very beginning, and I don't know if you'd know this, but so the male mouse doesn't have diabetes. What happens yeah. if the male mouse did as well? So if the male mouse does have diabetes, the only thing that could really change is that the sperm might not be as fertile. It could have some uh, methylation changes in the DNA and acetylation changes. And so there is some slight differences that have been noticed in the literature in this field, but it's not nearly as important as the maternal environment that the fetus grows up in. And so the maternal environment is essentially where that fetus actually lives in yeah. and where they get their blood from. And that's not where they're, the, the, paternal, the, the paternal side, the father, doesn't have anything to do with that. And so would it, so if, if let's say the, the female mouse did not have diabetes, but the male mouse does, it would not have nearly as much of an impact? Yeah, so it would still be, it would slightly higher levels, like, mm -hmm. um, but it's not nearly as likely as if the, the mother had diabetes. Hmm. Okay, so it's really that environment piece that plays the key role. Yeah, exactly. Environment is, it's crucial. Yeah. And so then even, I guess, in um, human literature, there's if women have prediabetes or gestational diabetes, if they improve their lifestyle, we see that their pregnancy is going to be potentially less complicated. So if they eat well, if they exercise, would that be the same for the mouse if we made a mouse run on a wheel? So that's a great question. So the glucose, um, the levels of glucose in the, the fetal blood 
directly correlate with the likeliness of things like neural tube defects as well as congenital heart defects, which is what we also study in our lab. And so it's really just how you um, control the glucose mm -hmm. levels. The problem is, even with our best treatments that we have right now, we can't control the glucose levels adequately. Even just a little bit higher, but not necessarily diabetic levels of uh, glucose would still have uh, an effect than if it was just regular levels of glucose. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, it's, it's really a spectrum. It's not um, you either have it or don't like high levels or low levels, it's the spectrum. So because of that, um, anything can potentially make a difference. Like if you eat healthier, you're less likely to have hyperglycemia. Mm -hmm. If you exercise, you're less likely to have hyperglycemia. And that's actually something another person in my lab studied, but mm -hmm. she looked at heart defects as right. well. Okay, that's really cool. So there's a lot of lifestyle factors that yeah, come into play so here. Lifestyle is huge. In fact, that's kind of how most people get diabetes, type two diabetes at least, which mm -hmm. is much more prevalent than type one. Right. right. Yeah. yeah, this is awesome to hear so much of this. What's it like being a first-year master's student other than all this lab work? It's a lot of fun. So I actually just did the Amazing Race, and I've done <laughs> many other events here. How did you do? I did not get first, second, or third, <laughs> unfortunately. But thank you, Sogs, for having me yes. <laughs> Did you have fun, at least? I had a lot of fun. Tell our I, listeners what is the Amazing Race, because they're probably picturing <laughs> what's on television. Yeah, so essentially that, we would race around campus, We'd have to go to all the different places here um, at Western, and it's a large campus, so I was sweating. <laughs> uh, but uh, we race around all the different places, and we would do a little activity there. And it was a lot of fun, and we were in groups of four. So right. did it help yeah. that you had done your undergrad here at Western? Definitely. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> there was a huge difference. Half yeah. of the people on my team knew the places, and half the people had no idea. So, yeah. Nice. So you're, so you're settling in well then? Yeah, definitely. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So what made you, um, I guess, decide to pursue your master's? So that's a great question. So I first discovered my supervisor when he was my professor for uh, cardiovascular pharmacology. And just from his, what he would talk about in, our, in class, I became very interested. And I started volunteering in this lab that I now work in uh, about a year ago. And I found this research just to be very interesting and very important mm -hmm. because heart defects are huge, neural tube defects are even huger. And they just, if you have one, it's very, very bad, essentially. You don't really hear too much about it because if you have a cranial neural tube defect, chances are you're going to die right. very early on. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. So it's very sad. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it's amazing to like have research that even though you know you're working with the mouse, it has such real world application. Yeah. Once again, I'm a big picture guy, so I really took note of that. I couldn't study something just uh, like a protein that has no function, has no effect in a certain disease. But diabetes, it's so prevalent. It's mm -hmm. raising. The, mm -hmm. the prevalence is raising every single day. Right. And so. And it, it sounds like you really have a, a good head start on your project. Yeah. So what is your timeline look for your master's? Uh, I'm hoping to pretty soon be able to identify whether this chemical actually does BH4, if it does prevent neural tube defects. Um, at the same time, I'm also doing a second project, which I can't talk about right now. <laughs> but uh, You stay exactly, tuned. A little secret project. But uh, I'm hoping to uh, figure out if it does affect it and how it affects neural tube defects. And at that point, I'm going to try to discover how does it do that. 
Awesome. This might be a, a little different question. I'm always curious, people that work with mice and all these animals, what does a day in your life look like? Do you kind of walk in the lab, say hi to your mice? I do actually say hi to my <laughs> mice. Yeah, I, I talk to my mice, I'm not going to lie. And do but, they have uh, names? <laughs> no, they don't have names. That would be a terrible idea. <laughs> uh, they have numbers. But okay. uh, no, I do, when I first walk into the lab, the first thing I do, I actually go to my mice and check to see if they're plugged. Mm. And I'll usually say hi to them. <laughs> Might tell them a little story. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and then check to see that they've got food and water as well. Okay. That's always important. Yeah. And speaking of food and water, does that matter? Do you kind of, do you regulate the type or how much food they get or? So that's a great question. So like m mice, they usually just, they themselves are pretty good at regulating how much they eat and how much they drink, but you can always measure the weight of the food that they have. Mm. Yeah. And are, so are you in the lab like nine to five type thing? Yeah, so generally I will be there at the latest 9 a.m. <laughs> and then I'll leave five to six approximately, yeah. All right. So I still have a life outside. <laughs> <laughs> well, a part of that life is joining GradCast. Yes, I'm yeah. thrilled. So tell us why you are uh, coming to the dark side. Well, I like to hear myself talk. <laughs> <laughs> I like meeting a bunch of people, and everyone here on the committee has been a lot of fun to hang out with. Uh, I hope to meet some other people and hope other people come on here as well. Mm -hmm. And I just like to learn some new things. That was a shameless plug to listen to our podcast yep. and also to come on the onto our radio show. Yeah, I'm pretty good at that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, what's something maybe different from your undergrad to your master's? You've been at Western, obviously, so tell us something different that you've experienced. Yeah. Uh, so in my undergrad, I you, you have to go to your classes. You're just told when to go, essentially. You don't get too much choice in what you want to do. The program I actually was in, I had a fair amount of choice, but actually being in the lab now, I've chosen to do this project. I've chosen to be with this prof, with the people in the lab, uh, and I also get to, with some some input from my supervisor, I get to choose my own hours too. Mm -hmm. And so I really like that fact. Mm -hmm. okay. And so it's much more flexible. And it might be too early to ask, but do you have you thought about plans for beyond your master's? I have thought about plans, so I am studying diabetes, and uh, my other project involves the heart, and so these are two huge fields, and they're interconnected too, and so I'm hoping to get into sort of the business side, potentially pharma pharmacological, pharmaceutical companies, pardon me, cool. but uh, I'm not sure if I'm doing my master's or PhD yet, if that's what you're referring to. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also really interesting to hear a different perspective of going into like the business side of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. My family's very entrepreneurial. My dad owns a few companies here in London. So mm. that's always just been, it's been in my family. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it's in your blood. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, this has been amazing to hear about not just your research, but also your life here at Western and your life, I guess, after 5 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if anybody wants to learn more about your research or just get in touch with you, what would be the best way for them to do that? The best way is probably just to come to the medical science building and just find me on the second floor. I'm roaming the halls occasionally. <laughs> uh, but you could also email me at grobin6 at uwo.ca, which I'm sure we'll put that up with the podcast. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's that's probably the best way to email me. And cool. one more question. So your um, your bachelor's was in interdisciplinary medical sciences. Yes. So any of our potential soon-to-be grads, any words of wisdom or advice you'd like to give them? Sure. Uh, first of all, work hard. 
But uh, I really loved my program, IMS, because I was able to find the lab that I could do. So I wasn't just put with a certain professor mm -hmm. to do a thesis. Um, instead, I just did. A, I learned a bunch of lab techniques, and I volunteered at a couple of different labs here at Western, and I found what I loved to do. Mm -hmm. And so I'd really recommend that. Figure out what you want to do and find a good supervisor and just go for that. All right. Well, thank you so much, Greg. Thank you to all of our listeners. This was GradCast. We are the official radio show for the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. We are on air on CHRW every Tuesday at 6 o'clock. You can also catch all of our previous episodes on gradcast.ca. And if you'd like to come on to our show and tell us about the amazing work that you're doing, or if you'd like to get in touch with our committee, please email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we will catch up with you soon. The Gradcast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.